0: Welcome to When Things Go Wrong, a show about what to do when things you expect to go just fine simply don't. I'm your host, Frank Sapovitz, and in this episode, we're going to talk with someone who fully understood that things very likely would not go right even before his very first day on the job. And no matter how prepared he was or how well he performed. Our very special guest Willie O'Ree was the first player of African descent to play in the National Hockey League, and that was back in 1958. Like the vast majority of NHL players of the time, Willie was born and raised in Canada, Fredericton, New Brunswick to be exact. He played two seasons in the NHL followed by a long hockey career in the Western Hockey League, where he led the league in scoring twice, and also played in the American Hockey League before hanging up his skates at the age of 43 in 1973. Willie was honoured with the Order of Canada in 2008, the highest civilian award for a Canadian citizen, and was inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame in 2018. His number 22 jersey was retired earlier this year by the Boston Bruins. And a marvellous film, appropriately titled Willie, a documentary about his journey, was released in 2020. That journey was not easy, and it was filled with things gone wrong and things that were just plain wrong. And how could it have been otherwise? The world was different when Willie O'Ree entered the NHL. Are things different for hockey players of color today? Well, whatever the differences are, it's in part because of the trailblazing efforts back then and still today of our guest Willie O'Ree
1: Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC.
0: Welcome, Willie. It's great to have you. Well, thank you, Frank. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, you made your NHL career with the Boston Bruins on January 18th, 1958, when you were signed to replace an injured player on the roster. So tell us what that night was like and what was going through your mind before taking the ice for the very first time at Boston Garden.
1: Well, I was in Quebec uh, playing with the Quebec Aces in the Quebec uh, Professional League. Um, I got the call from the Bruins uh, to meet the Bruins in Montreal to play two games against the Montreal Canadiens. When I arrived in Montreal, uh, I was met by um, Coach Milt Schmidt and General Manager Lynn Patrick. They sat me down and said, Willie, we brought you up because uh, we think you could add a little something. Um, Don't worry about anything else about just going out and uh, playing your game. So basically, uh, you know, that's what I did. I had, I had played against the Montreal Canadiens in exhibition games, but this was going to be the first NHL game. And, uh, you know, I had prepared myself to a certain extent, and I had the butterflies until I stepped on the ice. And uh, then when I stepped on the ice that first shift, uh, everything seemed to settle down. And uh, we were fortunate to beat Canadians that night. We shut them out 3 nothing. It was a Saturday night, and you're shutting out the Montreal Canadiens in the Montreal Forum on a Saturday night was just a feat in itself.
0: So uh, this was a remarkable personal accomplishment, of course, getting to the NHL, because any player who's played junior hockey, semi-pro hockey, that's their goal, right? That's where they want to get to. But did you fully appreciate the significance of what that achievement meant as a cultural milestone, but beyond the personal achievement?
1: Well, yes. You know, um, I you know, when I was playing junior, I, I was told by my first junior coach, Phil Watson, when I was playing in Quebec. And um, he said, well, he says, uh, there hasn't been a black hockey player in the national hockey league. And he says, you have the skills and the ability to play. And, you know, kind of went in one ear and out, uh, out the other. But at that time I just wanted to be a good junior player and represent the hockey club. Um, my second year when I played in, um uh, Kitchener, Ontario. Uh, black Jack Stewart was the coach and told me the same thing. He said, Willie, there hasn't been a, a black player in the National Hockey League. And he says, you know, you have the skills and the abilities. And then it kind of it kind of sank in a little bit with me, you know, and I said, geez, maybe maybe there's something to it. And then when I turned pro in 1956 uh, with the Quebec Aces and Punch Emelich was the uh, coach and general manager, he told me the same thing. So I um, I put those three three things together and I said, well, I said, you know, uh, there, there is possibly a chance that you you could be the first. And, you know, it, I didn't dream. I just went out and started playing. And then, you know, when the Bruins called me up and um, I went to Montreal, uh, it, it just seemed to all fall into place. So you were thinking NHL right from the beginning. I was thinking, in, yeah, to get into the NHL. Yeah. I was saying, you know, uh, when they tell you, you know, that you have the skills and the ability um, and I always applied myself, you know, to 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 be the best hockey player I could be. Uh, anytime I got on the ice,
0: so so let's talk about that because you yes you did have the skill and the ability. So did others. Uh, there were other players of color in the hockey world on various levels, on professional and semi-professional sport during the first fifty years of the twentieth century, like Herb Carnegie, for example. Right right and now herb actually played on the black aces line with his brother ozzy and mary uh, manny mcintyre manny in 1941 McIntyre, yeah. right and and again in 19, 1945. so h- how did their experiences inspire you
1: well you know i had i had met uh, herbie and uh ozzy uh, carnegie I'd, I'd been in um in herbie's home in in toronto uh, manny mcintyre's from my hometown but I said there's three there's three black hockey players that that played together and and I knew I knew Herbie just by his his experience that you know he could have been in the National Hockey League before me he had the skills and the ability to be there but unfortunately there were circumstances that you know that that didn't permit him to play but. Um, I really, I really thought, and uh, I kept it in my mind that uh, you know, just just work hard and, and stay focused on on what you want to do, and uh, we'll just see what uh, you know, just see, see what happens. Now you've been referred to as the Jackie Robinson of
0: hockey because, of course, you were the first. Uh, Mr. Robinson, of course, broke the color barrier in Major League Baseball, and and that's with the Brooklyn Dodgers in 1947. 1947. Yeah. All right. Now. You actually met Jackie Robinson, is that right?
1: I met him on two occasions, yes.
0: Yeah, t- tell us about that experience and and how he inspired you or informed you as an athlete.
1: Yeah, well, I was playing baseball in my hometown, of Fredericton, and uh, I played uh, shortstop and second base, and uh, the team that I was on won the championship that year. The reward was that our team was going to be taken to New York to see the Empire State Building and the Radio Music City Hall and Statue of Liberty and all the, all the tourist attractions. Uh, I met Mr. Robinson after a game at Ebbets Field. Uh, had the opportunity to go down and, and talk with him uh, at the dugout. And I said, Mr. Robinson, I, uh, I said, it certainly is an honor and a pleasure to meet you. And I says, I not only uh, play baseball, but I also uh, play hockey. And Mr. Robinson said, well, he says, I didn't realize that there were any black kids playing hockey. And I said, yes, Mr. Robinson, there's a few. And I talked with him for probably another five or six minutes. And he uh, he says, well, whatever sport you choose, he says, just work hard. He says, there's no substitute for hard work. He says, you only get out of the thing what you put into it. And so that kind of stuck with me. And then um, uh, in 1962, uh, the NAACP had a luncheon for Mr. Robinson at one of the local hotels in North Hollywood. Uh, I received uh, an invitation through the hockey club. So we arrived at the hotel. Uh, Mr. Robinson was standing over in the corner talking to uh, some media people, and uh, the coach and uh, three players were standing offside waiting for Mr. Robinson to finish. When he finished, uh, the coach came over and said, Mr. Robinson, I'd like to introduce you to three of the local hockey players, especially Willie O'Ree, newly acquired from the Halaloa Canadians. And soon he said to Willie O'Ree, Mr. Robinson, turned to me and looked at me right in the eye and he said, Willie O'Ree, he says, aren't you the young fellow I met in Brooklyn? Now, this is 1949 when I met him for the first time, and this is 1962. So he must have I must have had an impact on him when he met me. And uh, he definitely had an impact on me uh, meeting him for the second time. Oh, Willie, you have
0: an impact on everybody, I have to tell you. <laughs> um <laughs> So you played in the NHL in, in the original six era. And mm-hmm. and for those of, of our listeners who don't know what that means, that's that there were two teams in Canada and right. Montreal and Toronto. There were four teams in the United States, uh, which were Boston, New York Rangers, Detroit and Chicago. Now, when you were on the road, did you get the same level of support that you did when you were in Boston? playing for the Bruins or were there other things going on in the background
1: there? well there were other things going on but I I had I had the support of, of, of the uh, of the Bruin organization especially the players that I was playing with you know and uh, I felt I felt confident uh, I knew that I'd probably be exposed to you know some racial remarks and racial slurs but uh, it didn't bother me I uh, when I went on the ice side, all I wanted to do was concentrate on playing, uh, you know, uh, to the best of my ability, and representing the hockey club, you know, to the best of my ability. But I, uh, you know, I, I heard the racial remarks and racial slurs, but I, I let it went in one ear and out the other. I, it really didn't, it really didn't affect my play.
0: Now you were able to do that because you had the support of your team, and that was that was critical. If you didn't have that, it might not have been able to go out the other ear. Oh, that's true right? I mean, you were surrounded by people who were incredibly supportive of you personally.
1: Well, I fought a lot when I first started playing. I fought because I had to, not because I wanted to. I, I wasn't a big guy, uh, you know. But, uh, you know, uh, the only time I fought was when guys speared me and butt-ended me and, you know, cross-checked me. And, you know, back then, none of the players wore any helmets or no face shields or cages. And I always tried to protect my protect my face because, you know, I only had one eye. And, um but i dropped my gloves and i won fights and lost fights but i mean that's that's everyday
0: that's everyday hockey even today maybe it was a little bit more prevalent back then
1: yeah uh, i right. think they um i think they kind of geared on me because of you know because of my color but um i i always tried to represent the hockey club and and went out and played to the best of my ability
0: and you, your teammates came to your oh, aid yeah.
1: on the they on the ice as ice, well i, I would imagine it. Uh, I can remember the the, the, the one incident, and it, it it's stuck in my mind over the years. Still, it was in it was in Chicago. Uh, we were playing against the Chicago Blackhawks, and uh, uh, before the game, we're warming up, and one of the Chicago players uh, came as we're warming up, and I'm skating around. He came by and took his stick and gave me a two-hander right across the ankles, and then he made a couple of racial remarks, and you know, shaking his shaking his head, and you know, so the game. Uh, the warm-up ends, we go in, uh, the game starts. Uh, it's the second, I'm on the, the second shift on the ice. I'm in, I got the puck and I'm in behind the Chicago net and I, I dumped the puck out to, to my winger. And, um, this uh, player uh, came from my blind side. I couldn't sign him. He came from my blind side and he, uh, he butt me in the mouth and uh, split my nose, knocked my two front front teeth out. And, and, um, uh, uh, you know, I was bleeding and I knew I knew I was going to fight. So I dropped my I had uh, dropped my stick and, uh, um, you know, get into an altercation. And we both were flown out of the game. Um, the uh, the both benches, benches emptied. All the Bruins come out of their bench. All the Chicago Blackhawks come out of there it was 92 minutes and penalties assessed to the different the different players. And I'm in the dressing room. And after they plugged my stick me up and plugged my nose, uh, you know, I was trying to listen to the game. And. Um, uh, you know, after the game, the, the fans became so violent that usually when you come out of the dressing room, the Chicago dressing, you walk up a ramp up some stairs and you would walk out and there'd be the bus. Well, they had to bring the bus all the way into the stadium and just park it outside the, the dressing uh, the dressing room door. And then they threw a canopy over the uh, the dressing room door because there was fans down there throwing bottles, throwing cans. And, you know, so we finally uh, we finally exited the building. And uh, you know that was that was my first time that I really had a, an altercation, um, you know, since I had come up with the come up with the Bruins.
0: So remarkably, Willie, after your last game for the Bruins in 1961, yes, it it took another 13 years before Mike Marson was drafted by the Washington Capitals in 1974. the right. Next player of African descent. In your opinion, why did it take so incredibly long for another player of African descent to break in? I don't know
1: if they were ready, uh, uh, you know, for another black hockey player, or maybe they were looking for a a superstar, uh, you know, to come into the league. Um, I played with a a teammate, Stan Maxwell, hailed from Toronto, Nova Scotia, good hockey player. He was my center, center, and I played with him for eight years, could have played in the NHL. Uh, you know at that time Herb Carnegie again and uh, could have been there but um, uh, I don't I don't uh, know if it was uh, the, the the prejudice part or the, you know but um, as I said uh, I uh, I knew that there were other players that, that were good enough to uh, to come up and play at that time
0: well it, it's a shame that it did take so long that's true it did Now, two years before your rookie season in Boston, right, you were injured by a flying puck that left you blind in one eye.
1: My right eye.
0: Yeah, it was the right eye. Yeah. So, it, it, at, and it was against NHL rules for a player not to have use of both eyes. So, how did you make the roster?
1: Well, um, I was I was playing junior. Uh, I was playing in 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 Kitchener, Ontario. Um, against a – and. Uh, it was a, as I said, no face shields, no cages, nothing to protect your face. There was a slap shot uh, from the point. One of my own defensemen slapped the puck. Kent Douglas slapped the puck. This defenseman come out to block the shot. The, the ricochet puck ricocheted off the uh, off the stick. I'm in front of the net for a deflection. The puck come up and hits me flat, broke, breaks my nose. Uh, you know, uh, um, cuts me uh, around the eye. And I remember dropping down to the ice, and I could feel the blood rushing down. The next thing I knew was Placed in an ambulance and and taken to the hospital. Uh, doctor Henderson was the uh, was the doctor, the surgeon that that operated on me, and um, I'd um, I'd been in my uh, my recovery room, and Doctor Henderson came in and st- stood by my bedside, and he said, Mr. O'Ree, he says, I'm I'm sorry to inform you, he says, the impact of the puck completely shattered the retina in your right eye, and he says you're going to be blind and you'll never play hockey again. Well, I was 19. And the goals and dreams that I set for myself seemingly were gone. So I remained in the hospital for another three or four days, and I get out. And within five weeks, I'm back on the ice practicing. Now, being a left-hand shot and playing left wing to compensate, I, I had to turn my head all the way around to the right to pick the puck over my right shoulder. And I was over skating the puck and missing the net. And I said, Willie, what's wrong? So I just said, Forget about what you can't see and just concentrate on what you can see. So the season ends, and uh, I come back to my hometown, and um uh, my parents were my parents were very happy that that I would that I was home and that uh, my you know my eye injury was good, you know that i I could see again. but um, I couldn't see. I was blind, but I didn't tell my parents. Um the only person I told was my younger sister. Betty And I said, sis, I says, don't say anything to anybody, because if they find out that I can't see, I will have no opportunity or chance to play, not only professional, but play in the NHL. So we kept that a secret and uh, Punch Emlek got a hold of me and said, Willie, uh, I'd like to invite you to the the, uh, Quebec Aces training camp up in Quebec. So I went and uh, played left wing. Didn't take an eye exam. They, that's the thing that I was worried about, that I was going to sit in front of an eye machine because they'd have found out no eye machine. So I played. I make the team and uh, played. Um, the Bruins invited me to their training camp in 1957. I went to the Bruins training camp. No eye machine, you know, played there, went back to Quebec. Uh, 1958, went to the Bruins training camp again. No eye machine, went back and then the bruins called me up on january the 18th 1958 and you know, i just went out and you know went out and played and, and you know didn't tell anybody and <laughs> i played 21 years you know with one eye so i just got, and, and in all that time nobody knew nobody knew no uh, i didn't tell so how team. did I didn't tell my teammates uh, i just told my older sister that's the only only person i told
0: so how did you change your game in order to to make it not apparent well that you had a blind side
1: when I was traded to the uh, the uh, Los Angeles blades in 1961 uh, I went and uh, I was I was playing playing left playing left wing again and then in 1965 uh, I was still in Los Angeles Alfie Pike was the coach and uh, we went to training camp and uh, you know I'm a left winger they had, he had about seven left-wingers, and he only had two right-wingers in training camp. So he said, Willie, have you ever played right-wing? And I said, no. I said, I've always played left-wing and left-hand shot. He says, well, I'd like you to try it. He said, I'd like to use your speed over on the right side. So now I switch over to the you know, right wing and um, skating down the ice. You know, the boards are to my right, and I can be looking to see everything coming out on my left side. So I played there that that season, and uh, won the I won the goal scoring. Only due to the fact that I, I had switched over and I didn't have to be turning my head, you know, to pick the puck up.
0: So those were the years that you won the scoring title.
1: Yeah, sixty-five in 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 um, Los Angeles and sixty-nine in San Diego. Yeah, because you changed
0: sides. Changed sides. And it wasn't your decision. No. That was just so you had all the angels on your shoulder, Willie, <laughs> all, all the way through. Yeah, really. Um, that's
1: tremendous. It took, so, it just so took a few games to you know to settle in, uh, taking 90% of your passes on your backhand, but then you had the advantage when you're going down the ice and then you, you know you're going in on the net, you have the advantage. And uh, as I said, I, I scored uh, 38 goals that year.
0: That's tremendous. So, so the poster for Willie, the uh, award winning documentary about your life, shows a subtitle that reads. How the descendant of escaped slaves changed hockey forever. and And without question, Willie, you changed the sport of hockey, and you're still changing it. We'll get into that in a minute. But how did hockey change you? What did it teach you about persevering and overcoming those challenges?
1: Well, uh, I had always set goals for myself, and I still believe in setting goals for yourselves and and working hard and you know, believing in yourself. And um, you know, hockey changed me because, uh you know w- when I played uh, as I wanted to be the best hockey player I could be i I knew I knew within my within myself the type of hockey player I was and I you know I always I always worked hundred percent um when I went to training camp and, and the games um I just I just decided that um, that that hockey gave me the opportunity to to um, to play the sport that I really wanted to play and, and excel in it. And, uh, I just told myself, uh, work hard, believe in yourself and don't let anybody tell you you can't attain your goal. If you, if you feel strongly within your heart and within your mind, um, those are the two things. And so th- the reason you knew where to aim is you knew where the target was, yeah. you knew
0: what you wanted I, and you didn't let anything get in your way. And,
1: you know, and, um, I still live that way. You know, even today, you know, I st- set goals for myself and uh, and work hard. And as I mentioned, there's, you know, there's no substitute for hard work. And I tell these these boys and girls when I have the opportunity to talk to them, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's how you feel within yourself. You know, if you feel good, if you think you can, you can. If you think you can't, you're right. And there's a lot of to it.
0: So it's that incredible focus that has made you so incredibly successful. You played professional hockey over two decades and into your 40s. And, and in the 1990s, you were an employee of the Hotel Daryl Coronado <laughs> in San Diego.
1: I was a security guard.
0: <laughs> yeah, you were. And and you were contacted and visited by an executive from the NHL who years later would actually be the producer of Willie. Brian McBride. Tell us about, about your meeting with Brian McBride.
1: Um, how Brian contacted me. Brian was in New York at a meeting with, um, I believe, five or six other gentlemen. And one of them was Lou Vero, who was that time with uh, uh, USA Hockey. Yep, Lou Vero. Yes, Lou Vero. Great friend of mine. I I love him. And so anyway, they were talking about how the NHL and how the USA Hockey could combine and open hockey up to every boy and girl that wants to play. Any boy or girl who wants to play. And um, Jackie Robinson's name came up. And they said, yeah, Robinson broke the color barrier in 1947 with the Brooklyn Dodgers. And then um, said, yeah. So then uh, just out of the blue, Lou Lou Vero says, well, we have our own Jackie Robinson in hockey. And the room went silent. They said, well, who who is it? Lou Vero said, Willie O'Ree. He says, I was living in New York, and I watched him play in the old Madison Square Gardens. So then Brian McBride says, well, uh, is he still is he still alive? Is he still in San Diego? And Lou says, I think so. He was playing with the San Diego Gulls there in the Western Hockey League. So then Brian said, Well, uh, I'd like to get a hold of him. Maybe he'd like to get involved with this this hockey uh, diversity program at that time, which is now hockey is for everyone. So Brian called the San Diego Gulls, and they wouldn't give my number. And he says, Well, he says I will leave a message. I'm I'm Brian McBride with the National Hockey League. Could you please have Mr. Recall me? So anyway, um, he couldn't get a hold of me. So he he knew a couple of FBI gentlemen in San Diego, and he called them and he said, I'd like to see if you could get in touch with uh, Willie O'Ree. I know he's working at the in San Diego, and uh, I'd like to talk to him. So uh, within a few hours, they called him back and said, called Brian back and said, yes, uh, Mr. O'Ree is working over at the Hotel Dell. Uh, in the security department. So then Brian called me and he said, yeah, I'm, I'm Brian McBride. And I was a little hesitant at first. I says, well, um, why are you calling me? He says, well, I'm, I'm a newly uh, appointed vice president of the diversity program with the National Hockey League. And he says, we have this program and I'd uh, like to know if you would uh, be interested in uh, maybe uh, uh, working with the program. So, uh, you know, he, he kind of laid it out. And uh, I said, yes, yeah, seems something that I'd be interested in working with kids. So anyway, that's how it all started, and um, I was going around and uh, you know visiting schools and boys and girls clubs and juvenile detention facilities and the YMYWCAs is trying to encourage more boys and girls to get into hockey, and that's how it all started. And then uh, you know he he, uh, he approached me about uh, uh, doing this documentary. I said, "Well, I I don't know," uh, he says, uh, "I've never been involved in other documentaries." He says, "Yeah," I says, "I think it uh, it would be good." So he knew some influential people and they, they started talking and they got it all together. And then that's how the, that's how the documentary he really, you know, came about.
0: Well, it's, it's a tremendous documentary. And for those of you who, who are listening, if you have the chance to stream it uh, by all means, you really should. It's, it's a tremendous film. Um, so of course, you were the first player of African heritage that played in the NHL. We've talked about that during this entire episode, but that was not the end of the story. <laughs> uh, th- this season, there were 43 players of color on NHL rosters, right. and that's still not the destination. No. It's it's just a stop on the journey. Now, Willie, you continue to fight for inclusion and opportunity in the sport. T- tell us about how you're transforming and and through your your early years working with the NHL front office how you transformed the challenges and adversities that you experienced well, I into that, positive change I in the sport
1: i knew that there were other not only black black players but players of color out there that you know that were playing hockey uh, young kids uh, uh you know kids that were playing in junior and college and um i what i wanted to do is i wanted to just just make sure that Hopefully that they get the opportunity to, to play the sport and and have the opportunity to either um, get involved in, in in organized hockey and uh, and uh, and you know play, you know um, when I when I first met some of the black players and players of color that are at that time were playing in the national hockey league, I I bring Jerome Ginla Calgary Flames. Yes, I was invited yes. to his training camp uh, in school uh, for kids in Calgary you know, when I went, there, uh, I went there and the first thing Jerome said to me, he said, Willie, he says, I can't imagine what you had to get through uh, to make it possible for players like myself to play in the NHL. Uh, the perseverance and and uh, your attitude and everything that gave you the, not only the strength to play, but to carry on, you know, after the game. And And then I met some other players that told me the same thing. And, you know, it's uh, when you hear that from players that are playing in the NHL that are, you know, making millions and um, thinking thinking that of me, and have you know uh, have that feeling to tell me about uh, how I changed the game and made it possible for them. It was just a nice feeling.
0: Well, and and I remember there was also a Willie O'Ree All Star Game. Yes. That that the NHL now. Now I know that you're an incredibly modest individual, Willie. But but tell us about the Willie O'Ree All Star Game because I remember those really well.
1: Well, now that, that the first one was in Boston, and um, um, they. But they who helped... were
0: the players? Tell us about wh- who it was gauged toward, who it was positioned toward.
1: Well, and uh, the, uh, they were the, the players that that came to the Willie O'Ree All Star. They were players that were picked from their programs. They were flowing into Boston, uh, put them up. We treated them like NHL players and they wore NHL jerseys. They had NHL hats. Um, They played, uh, they played uh, two or three games and it was just a fun weekend. They, uh, we went to uh, watch the Bruins play, had autographs, pictures taken. It was, was just a fun, it was just a fun weekend for these kids. I mean, some of them had never been out of their, their province. Some of them had never been out of their state before. And, um, it was just a, it was just a, just a wonderful weekend, and uh, I just had, a, I just had a great time being there with the kids and had, having pictures taken and, and uh, autographs. It, it must have been incredible for those players to meet
0: other players from underrepresented and underserved communities.
1: Oh, they did. You know, yeah, to meet players from you know from from other programs, and uh, it was just, uh, it was just a fun weekend, and then. You know, they, some of the Bruins, some of the Bruins came down and they had pictures taken with them and autographs. And I mean, it was, a, it was a weekend. These kids will never forget.
0: So players from these communities, underrepresented, underserved, in some cases, economically disadvantaged yes, communities. A lot of them. What is your advice to them, drawing from your own experiences, if they wanted to make a name for themselves in professional hockey?
1: Well the first thing i I would tell them is believe in yourself feel good about yourself like yourself if you feel good about yourself and like yourself, other people are gonna like you but if you have a negative attitude you know towards yourself I, I don't think people would like to be in your presence or 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 be uh, surrounded by you. The next thing I tell them is you know set goals for yourselves and work towards your goals goal setting is very important and don't let anybody tell you you can't attain your goal if you feel within your heart, within your mind, work hard and stay focused on what you want to do. And I mean, then it's up to you. It's, it's entirely up to you what you want to do. But I I, 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 I stress this, you know, um, I've held a lot of um, clinics, um, you know, over the years, uh, different cities. And I still tell these boys and girls, you know, work hard, stay focused, you know, feel good about yourself and, uh, don't ever be ashamed of who you are. And that's how you keep the noise out
0: from anything else and everyone else yeah. on the outside, whatever they're saying or whatever they're alluding to, right? It's true. Well, friend, we, friends, we've been we've been talking with Willie O'Ree, uh, an incredible story of how the great, great grandson of an escaped slave from South Carolina went on to play 22 years in professional hockey. And and since then, Willie O'Ree has traveled thousands of miles across North America to build and support 26 grassroots hockey programs, serving underrepresented, marginalized, and economically disadvantaged kids.
1: It certainly has been a pleasure, and I you know I have to thank uh, Rob Woolley, my um, my good friend uh, with the National Hockey League, um, the work that we've done over the years. I'm I'm just happy, and as I as I mentioned earlier, uh, I've been blessed over the years, and. Uh, thanks to my higher power that uh, I can always turn to uh, from time to time. And, you know, as I said, it's uh, it's, just, it's just nice uh, being able to give back.
0: Well, Willie, it's a blessing to know you too and to have worked with you back in my days at the NHL. Um, and so, Willie, thank you. And listeners, thank you for joining us on When Things Go Wrong.
1: Thank you, everybody. A pleasure. Keep safe. Be well.
0: Learn more about how to plan for and survive the inevitable blips, bloopers, and blunders of life and business in What to Do When Things Go Wrong, available in hard copy, ebook, and audiobook from Amazon.com and other fine booksellers. I'm Frank Sapovitz, and remember if it hasn't happened to you, it just hasn't happened to you yet. The When Things Go Wrong podcast is produced by Chris and Mandy Wimmer and is a production of Black Barrel Media in association with Fast Traffic Entertainment. You can find more Black Barrel Media shows on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening. For more background on this show, join us at Black Barrel Media on Facebook and Instagram, at Media on Twitter, and on our website at blackbarrelmedia.com. See you next time,
1: if all goes well.